Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Hello, 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 survivors. Happy New Year. Happy 2022. What is going to happen to us in 2022? It is truly a crapshoot. It is anybody's guess. It literally could be anything. This could be the year of yet more plagues. We could have locusts. We could have cow, mad cow. Remember mad cows? We could have some more mad cows. We could have just seriously like uh, Chinese throwing stars falling from the sky. It literally could be anything. So, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Is that what it's called? Is that what they say? Yeah. Anyway, so for today, for the beginning part of our episode, we're giving you what I hope you'll see is a special treat, which is a look back at some previously, what do they call it? Lost footage. Is is it footage if it's audio? Hmm. I don't know. Well, footage came from video in any case. It had to do with film. So yeah, so audio footage. Sure. Audio footage. Back from the days before this was called I Survived Theater School, and we were calling the podcast Undeniable, and we recorded a bunch of episodes of that which have never been aired. And so we thought it would be fun to take a little sneak peek back at those old days that we recorded actually in 2020, the year that was We'll Live in Infamy. And we're going to play some of it for you today. And then after that, we have a fabulous interview with our first ever clown, Matt Croak. So please enjoy. Omar in the Wire is like a parental figure for me. It's the weirdest thing. He is so complicated, but also really true to himself. But anyway, I, I just posted about like that those characters and that and that and that um, trueness to themselves is what I love about television. It's like this character is true to themselves. They're, whatever that means to them, you know, like it doesn't always look pretty. Yes, and, and television uh, has the opportunity to show a lot more of the, um, the nitty-gritty, the reality of a character's life. In a movie, everything... I mean, I guess if you're just taking a one slice, uh, one day in the life of, maybe you could get down to that level of detail. But mostly, a movie is just sort of giving a grand and often very positive spin right. on, you know... And it, the person is not as layered as they can be. And it's not, yeah, to me, it's not as, it's not as, um, like it's, it's, yeah, it's just, there's not enough time. You're like, wait a second, there's not enough time. Um, but yeah. So what did your parents make of you watching that stuff? They thought I was like nuts. They were like, you're making yourself scared. And I, and I wanted to be like, no, you're making me scared. I This is comforting me. You know what I mean? Like, this I have control yeah. over. But I didn't say that. Obviously, I'm a kid. But I they thought it was weird. Yeah, they thought it was really weird because I would get into America's Most Wanted was on the same night as Unsolved Mysteries, I think. And then, um, and um, 
then once we got cable and or, or once it it also it like kind of merged into like Bigfoot UFOs. Oh yeah, I got into yeah. Bigfoot UFOs, all that stuff. Well, I think people who get into that are people who feel also on the fringe of whatever the thing that they're trying to be a right. part of is. Right. And like, like a family. That makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. 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 And that makes I le- sense. I believed in Bigfoot. I remember watching the California Bigfoot tape, that old 70 something, which is interesting because that's around the Kiki time. There's that famous. Oh, I, I don't. There's a I don't famous, know about that. famous, famous, famous caught on tape 1970 i want to say eight or nine in redlands somewhere in california and it i'm pretty sure and it's this you got to look it up it's the creepiest and they still can't they they can't just uh disprove it and they can't you know they can't and and they're like no it's it's a fake but it it is it is the quintessential bigfoot movie it was caught on movie uh film and I remember seeing that and being like, oh my God, that's real. That's, that's real. And things exist outside of us that we have no, like universes exist. Multi-universes exist that we are not a privy, privy to until we stumble upon it. Hey, let me run this by you. Did I tell you about the, when I first saw the warehouse that I lived in with Jeff and Rob in Oakland. No, but I thought of you the other day because someone, we live near a street called Oakland. Yeah. Oh, so just briefly, you know, my whole plan to move to California after DePaul was with this person who I was calling my boyfriend who was definitely not my yeah, boyfriend. That's how it is. I know. <laughs> who, who told me like, yeah, I want to move to California. And, and so my interpretation was, we are moving to California together. And I was so devastated when he didn't want right. to do it. So on the quick, I had to find a place to live. And I don't remember why. Maybe I called Jeff because they were, I knew he was there. He was there already. He was, like, he was there. He was planning to go there or he was there already. And he was like, yeah, we, we need a roommate. Do you want to come live in Oakland? Never been to Oakland <laughs> in my life. Never met Rob. Didn't know anything about it. And so the day I'm moving in, my dad is driving oh, me from shit. Sacramento and he's driving a big pickup truck and we start to get into Oak. I mean, he already was like, Oakland, are you sure? Because my dad's fucking racist. And we start driving in and we start getting to, it's like, first it looks pretty nice. Yes. That's how it was us too. There's a little, then it's like, ooh, (laughs) this is scary. Does anybody live here? Because it was all warehouses. It was all that first wave of gentrification of, uh, you know, people turning warehouses yeah. into lofts. And when we finally pulled up, you know, inside, I'm dying, but I'm saying to my dad, this looks great. This looks awesome. <laughs> my dad's like, are you sure you want, do you want to just, we can just turn right around and go home. So I get out, I knock on the door, Rob answers. And I'm like, Hey, I'm Gina. And he's like, Hey, I'm Rob. You want to move in? I go, yeah. He goes, he goes, hang on a second. Next thing I know, he closes the door and this garage (laughs) door starts opening. One of those huge roll up that you had to pull with the chain. And I'm telling you, my dad drove his truck into our new house and parked it right there. And I unloaded all the stuff from the back and it was a big concrete box with a, what a bathroom 
and a loft that had no walls. And Jeff had a sleeping bag here. <gasps> and Rob had a sleeping bag here. On the floor? Yeah. And 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 uh, Rob's like, you can have that corner. <laughs> he goes, don't worry, we're building walls soon. <laughs> and we did, or they did. Went to Home Depot, got sheet, like, and Rob built basically a partition. So we at least had a partition oh. to sleep in. And I fucking lived there for two years. Two Can years? you believe that shit? Yes. Yeah. I didn't know it yeah. was two years. It was two years and, and Jeff was, uh, Jeff, Jeff practiced drums like eight hours a day. I'm not kidding you. I mean, you got to respect the discipline, but he, he got up at a certain time. He went downstairs and he started practicing drums and he had, cause you know, he has that like very rigidly musical yeah. family with all yeah. that. Yeah. And he, maybe it wasn't eight hours, maybe it was four hours, but he did like drum scales or whatever they're called for four hours. Well, I was trying to sleep because I was a cocktail oh waitress my God. and I would well, get home favorite, at like two in the morning. One of my favorite stories about you is you told me that you were quitting smoking and you had a bunch of patches on and you passed out. Do you remember this? You No. You were, okay, you, you this was during this time. You worked at a, at a, at, at a bar and you were trying to quit smoking at one point. And so you put on, but you did you put on multiple patches, nicotine patches, and you didn't eat or something. And you like passed out. And I was like, oh my God, this was during that time. I remember because we were living right. in Oakland. There was something with God. patches and like the things we did, you know, the things we did. And you know what else I was doing then? I got into the worst codependent like relationship situation i was working at this bar yeah. and this guy oh i remember really this. liked me was yeah, he married Eddie. no yes yes he was married and he was so much older than me oh my God. and i wasn't even attracted ah! to him <gasps> and he was obsessed with me and i had never experienced that in yeah. my entire life and i kept being like Okay, I guess this is what it is, because like every other thing I've had, I'm trying right. chasing Me some too. fool around. Right. This guy think he wants to leave his wife for me. He wants to he wants to move us back to his hometown in Guatemala. He was obsessed, and I really worked so hard to try to convince myself that I liked him. Yeah, I think I remember this. And then I couldn't get myself out of the situation because get I was out? working with him. I had to quit. Uh. I had to quit the job and say, bye, I'm never coming back. <laughs> like, I'm running out. I just, I did a real <gasps> Irish goodbye. Like, I, I know you wanted to marry me, but I'm leaving. Bye. Oh, my God. And, and I never looked back, and I got a job at Yoshi's. That's right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>
some theater people mentioned it, and then I saw Sean on it, and I listened. That was the first one I listened to, of course, and then uh, and then that's how I heard about it. Okay, sorry, I was hey, late. Boss. I was watching. Or, hi, I sorry, I was watching um, TikToks about people getting terrible haircuts. That's the content. I in need. truth, you were not late. We're all quite early. Oh. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I was good. myself. I was reading um about the third chris noth accusation i mean you know if you get accused uh, like by two just come on out and just do the because it this the trickling through it's worse right because he keeps he keeps denying accused denying. I, I mean i can only know and i don't know matt how you've if you've listened to my episode any of the episodes but like that story of mine, how I lied to my boss and then it got, the lie got bigger and bigger. Do no, you know I don't know that one. Cause it's my favorite. Okay. So I worked for someone fancy and then anyway, and I had a lot of bosses and one of them was this woman and her mom called one day and like, and she called and I was supposed to report it in the call tracker. I did not do that. So then she said, did my mom call? And I said, no, I just lied. <laughs> and then, um, she said, really? Because she said she called. And I said, no. And then she said, really? Because hmm. it's just you and Kelly, this other woman in the office. And she said she talked to you. I said, no, she didn't. Well, anyway, wait, it got bigger and bigger But what's bigger. your mindset right now? Are you going, I'm going with this? Or you're like, oh, it's getting close. I'm going to get caught. Or you're just like, yeah, no. No, I like really committed <laughs> then. I dug in. She tripled down. The lie. And that was the sort of the Chris Knopf thing is like, is like, I couldn't let go, yeah. and, it, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it lasted. Well, here's the days. problem, and I, and I'm not a, I'm not all sports guy, so I hate to bring sports into it. But people like the chase, and people like the mystery. So when Roger Clemens got caught for steroids, and he's like, "I didn't do it, I didn't do it," it went on forever. And then when Andy Pettit got caught, he went, "Yeah, I got injured. I took a bunch of stuff. I wanted to get better," and and he kept playing baseball. And nobody cared about Andy yeah. Pettit. And yet still Roger Clemens, every press, it's like they want the chase because they're going, but didn't Jose Canseco say you were at that party because they're trying to, but weren't you with that girl who then said, just come out, be like weak moment. Just because, because like it will come out and you just, it's better for you to be the person who's in charge of, you know, yes. coming clean. Your own yeah. narrative. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. okay. Did you go by Matt or Matthew? Matt, I say Matt, it's Matthew, but Matt, I go Okay. Matt. Matt Crow, congratulations. You survived clown school. This is the first time I, survived I get to clown say school. that. I did. Woo! I did. And as a side note, it was my mother's idea, just to be very clear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wait. So let's start right there. Oh. What in the heck are you talking yeah. about? All right. I live in, in suburbs of Chicago, Niles. So I'm at Notre Dame High School. I'm a senior, three weeks away from graduation. They, they didn't really have a theater program, so but I knew I want to get into some kind of performing. So my mom comes home. This is true. She comes home. She says, Matt, I heard that they're having clown college auditions for Ringling Brothers to go to clown college. And I honestly said this to my mom. I said, Mom, that sounds great. Good luck in the circus. I thought she was telling me. I'm the youngest of five. I thought she's saying, you know, she was running away to the circus. I'm like, did you tell Dad? That's fantastic. Yeah. And she said, no, not for me, for you. Now, this is this is 88. So, you know, Stephen King just wrote it like three years prior. I'm like, oh, mom, clowns are out right now. Hard pass. I'm like, I'm not I'm not thinking clowning, um, but I'll pass on that. And she's like, yeah, I know. I heard this program. It's in Florida for eight and a half weeks. And I go, wait a minute, hold on. You're going to let me go to Florida for eight and a half weeks? 
oh, well, let's rethink this whole clown thing. Maybe they're not as scary as I think they are. So they held auditions at DePaul University. The director of Clown College has a strong connection with DePaul. I don't, I'm not sure if he was a student. Oh. Steve Smith is his name. And he did a show in Chicago called Kidding Around. Um, but oh, yeah, yeah. he ran Clown College. So we had him at DePaul University. So I saw so him 18 years old, still at Notre Dame High School. So we show up to the audition. Now, I know nothing of clowning. Like the Bozo Show, that's it. I know nothing. So I walk in, and people are dressed full makeup and costume, right? There's a guy juggling bowling balls. There's you know two oh guys God. snapping each other oh. in the corner with rubber chickens. And I, I turn to my mom and dad. I said, okay, we're leaving right now. My mom's like, oh, no, this seems really interesting. We should stay. I'm like, okay, we're here more for you than we are for me right now. It's like, oh, come on, there's yeah, a lot exactly. of people not in makeup and costume. Real fast, to jump ahead, what I didn't know then is that actually Ringling likes to shape their own clowns. So people who showed up in full makeup and costume were probably at a disadvantage because they didn't want the birthday party or they, they wanted their own kind of circus clown. But I didn't know that. So – it is that was good. It was good. It was ignorance gets right. you in kind of a same. It's the same with theater yep. school. If you come in and you're like, I'm a fully formed actor, they're going to be like, Oh, go yeah. fuck yourself. We want, we want to break you down totally. and start over. Well, and Ringling, I mean, we anyway. can get it. The creativeness is they almost suck out of the crane out of you because they want it their way. Like this is, so they really want to mm-hmm. shape you their own way. So the audition starts and he just says briefly, he's like, I'm going to teach you this bit, this comedy bit, uh, some physical movement. Don't change it. Don't try to be funny. Just do it. And I'm like, all right. So he did. It's pretty simple. Timing is everything. I am so glad I didn't go first because people went up there and sure enough, they try to be funny. They're doing things with their hands and trying to add to it. And I look at the director of clown college and he's just shaking his head. And I go, I get it. They don't care if I'm really funny. They want to see if I can follow directions. I'm like, all right, well, I, can, I can follow directions. So I just did what they told me to do. Did my movement. We did improv. I remember they put a chair in the middle of the room, walk in, do something with the chair, walk out. I boxed it and lost. Uh, that was my improv. So That's good. That's good. Yeah, I like the audition it. ends, and they give you like this 12-page application. When was the last time you cried? Three favorite books you read. I mean, really intense. And I'm When not was the last it. time you cried? That was one of the questions? I when love that. Cried. I would have nailed that. It was really intense, like 12 pages. And, and like a booklet, but 12, like all these questions. Yeah. And so my mom's like, did you fill it out? I'm like, yeah, you know, she's like all over me, like homework. So I fill it out. I send it in. So now I'm like a week away from graduating, you know, high school. And we, I get a letter in the mail from Ringling Brothers and I open it up and confetti spills all over the place. And it said, congratulations, awesome. oh you made God. it to clown college. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So my mom and dad come home and I hold up my letter. I said, I got in. I'm going to clown college. And my mom goes, oh, 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 we should talk about this. Oh, like she was doing a bit when she wanted you to go apply? When I told her, I'm like, what, you didn't think I'd get into clown college? And then she's like taking deep breaths going, no, you're going, you're going, you're going. What did I do? You're going. And so so I, I graduate high school. Now I was going to go to Oakton Community College. I already had a plan. It's a great college. My mom. Yeah, yeah. Where, where did she teach? What did she? She taught English way before okay. your time. Um, yeah, I met my wife there. I mean, I actually go, went back to. I love Oakton. Um, and um, and so 
now I got to tell all my friends because I didn't tell my friends I was auditioning clown college. It's just the whole concept to me was still I don't know clowning, <laughs> and so I'll keep it short. This part, but my conversations were, wait, you're not going to Oakton, you're going to I'm like clown college, and they're like, to do what? And I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm like, well, wouldn't it be to be a clown? You know, that sounds right. I think that's what I'm doing. And they're like, but you're going to clown college. Correct. That was with all my friends. That's fantastic so, right there. Like that's just. Three weeks, yeah. a month after high school, I go down to Venice, Florida, <laughs> go in. Now they say 3,000 apply, only 50 people get in. So there's only 50 of us. I get into clown college and I can go into more detail, but it's basically a 10 and a half week train, basically a 10 and a half week audition. And they give you full, you, you, you create your makeup, your costume. They teach you mime, falls, uh, you know, improv, all these classes. And then at the end, you do a graduation show. The owner of the circus comes. He sits down. You have a number on you. Your, my parents came in for the graduation. You do a two-hour show. He writes it down. The next day, after knowing these people for 10 weeks, you go into the cafeteria wearing a suit, not a clown suit, regular suit, <laughs> and... They yeah. come in, they read five names off. I was part of that five, another five, another eight, 18. Walk in, goodbye, thank you for the rest. And and those 18 got in the circus and everyone else went home. Holy shit. Now, first of all, I have I, so many, this is please. so fascinating. Like my question, my first question is, um, did you have to pay? No, no, it's free. Oh, shit. Free. I should have fucking right? done this. So completely okay. free. Then, like, I think is... you had to pay for the hotel or something. No, you just had to pay for some fees. Completely free. Fucking A. And then, and then, okay, so that was my first question. My second question is, were the other people, did you like form bonds with these other clowns? You do. And you, I mean, bonds that I still have today. Matter of fact, one of the fun things of the pandemic, I helped organize a, uh, a reunion, like where I saw people I haven't seen forever was the youngest clown in the circus. I was 18. Um, but most people were like in their mid 20s. Okay. That it has to be the name of your freaking memoir. I was the youngest, <laughs> was the clown, youngest clown in, in the circus. circus. Um, and what's interesting, a couple, you know, what I found fascinating is that every Saturday they would do, um, you would put on a showcase voluntarily, write a skit, try something out. And you didn't have to do it. When the graduation came, they then told us they were picking skits that they saw from those Saturday night shows and all those people who didn't do one went, Holy crap. I didn't, I never did anything. You would then go in someone else's skit. So luckily I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I wasn't the most talented by far, but every Saturday night I, I did something. I tried something out. I had three skits in the graduation show and you get writer's credit for all that. And they weren't, you know, I mean, we're talking basic clown skits here and that really helped me. And that taught me a lesson of, you know, even in even in an opportunity where three, you know, three thousand apply, fifty get in, some people weren't there. You know, they were still just not really trying to get the most out of it. And I yeah, kind of lucked yeah. into that lesson. I wasn't very ambitious, but little by little, I went, "Oh, I was picking up clues." Like, you know, don't try to be funny; just follow directions. Or, "Oh crap, I'm glad I wrote a skit because now it's in this graduation." So, clown college for me was a really great foundation for kind of getting a work ethic and and just uh, a personal ethic of what it would mean to be in this field. How did how did oh. the, so the, how did DePaul figure into this? When did you go there? 
So after I got, so when I, so I went to, and I could I'll go back. So I, I did the circus for a year. I signed a contract, did the lived on a train, the whole, the whole thing. Um, then after, oh, afterwards wow. I came back, I did not sign another contract. So I wanted to do second city. So I came home and I was home like three days and another quick mom story. I'm home three days and Ringling calls me. My parents are on a cruise and Ringling calls me and they said, Hey, we have this contracting eight, eight months in Japan. Do you want to go? It's not the circus, but it's something else. Tell us by tomorrow or we're moving on. That's so ringling, right? Oh, my parents are on a cruise. <laughs> so I'm calling, yeah. you know, shore to ship, trying to get my mom. She's on Dramamine because of the thing. Hi, honey. I'm like, I think I'm going to Japan for eight months. I love you. Your father's playing cards. Okay, I'm going to Japan for eight months. Bye. You know, so I just, I'm like, I'm going. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I went to Japan. Um, and then when I came back after that contract, Wait, what did you do in Japan if it wasn't the circus? What the fuck? Best job ever, ever. One of the jobs was that these big department stores, they're trying to rebrand, be a little more Western, a little more friendly. So they hired Ringling Clowns, one of the gigs, to go through their store, big department store, you know, 20 stories high because they build, you know, high, and just walk around and just clown in a department store. One of the (laughs) best things they did is I went to the TV section at the time when, you know, it was rows and rows of TV. I put them all on yeah. static. I took a chair from the from the furniture department, put it in front, went to the food court, got food, and ate food watching hundreds of static TVs, laughing, pointing, crying. I had like 200 people watching me. I mean, literally, this was my gig. I would go and pull the wigs off of mannequins and be like a chew, and everyone's like, oh, you know. It was amazing because they're very proper. And so any of this improper stuff. So that was my gig. That's like the greatest awesome. job. Wait, where did you live? What, did you speak Japanese? Did everybody else, did you have a group of expats? Tell us everything. So I, I again, fortunate. No, they stuck us in a very, uh, very heavy populated Japanese. No, we weren't, we were actually not in, we we're near Tokyo, but not in the city where all the tourists and all that. So it was very, I had a, and it was great because when I first got there, I'm doing Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's. And then by the time I'm there a month, I'm doing all the noodle shops with no signs on the, you know, just walking in and just immersed in the culture. We did take classes to speak, um, but I was full immersed in the culture. And I have actually, with the Reduce Shakespeare Company, I've been to Japan three times. I fell in love with it. I just love Japan. I love the culture. I love, you know, and I know there's a lot of struggling performers on our COVID, you know, from when I was there, they love street performers. I mean, they get paid well. I mean, it's really, they love the Western culture of, of entertainment. Hmm. Whoa. Okay. So then yeah, when you were done with your eight months in Japan, you came back to Chicago. Came back to Chicago. And then I want, I always had, I knew DePaul obviously because I live in Chicago. Um, I did start taking some second city classes. So I want to stay local. It just seemed right to me. I don't think I ever, looked uh anywhere else and so i did audition and it took me a while to get in uh with financial aid and and stuff and i I commuted i stayed at home so i just auditioned and i and i got in um so i got i you know i I got into paul um this what year was this had to be 90 uh 93 92 93 something like that and at this point, were you thinking okay now i'm i'm switching gears i'm gonna be a, a serious actor i was switching gears because I always felt even in the circus that the clowning would be more once I was in the program and I got the sense it wasn't 
seven-year-olds who are going to be in the circus for 20 years and those college people all learning their craft. You talk about the bonding. We all were kind of working on our craft, you know, studying Commedia dell'arte and, you know, and, and the clowning craft, what really amazed me of, I think of clowning as birthday clowns, but once you get, learn the craft, you go, Oh wow, there's really something to performance. And this performance can leave here. A lot of guys were going overseas to learn, you know, clowning in Europe, which is huge, Uh, you know, Japan. It just, it was, it always to me was a stepping stone to something else. So can I just tell you that I just have to interrupt no, and ask, like the mask work, you know how clown, like Commedia dell'arte and stuff with the masks. So when I was 16, I did a mask class at Piven Theater Workshop yep. in Evanston with, um, with, um, oh my God. Anyway, a, a famous guy that passed away, uh, Quinn, someone Quinn. Anyway, and um, that mask work that I did was probably someone, and I was 16, was probably some of the deepest, darkest. Mm-hmm acting I've ever done. It was not funny, but it was so moot. Like it was so intense because I had the mask on and it also taught me so much. And I realized, Oh, Oh, clowning and mask work and stuff is like serious fucking business. Oh yeah. Harpo marks will break your heart. If you want, you know, there's some real pathos there. Anyway. Well, not to get into the whole birthday clown circus clown thing, you know, it's a little bit of rivalry, but one of the things that was fascinating and, and I think kind of the joke of birthday clowns where they can be scary and I would never have known it is, you know, when you put on the makeup that you're using the muscles in your face and most of these birthday clowns are putting a smile that reaches to their ears and it's freaking the children out because we call it a BA, a busted ass. Looks like you got a big smile. That's not how your face works. That's not how a smile works. So to use every muscle because are you a happy or sad clown doesn't work. You can be a character clown and a hobo, but technically your emotion will dictate if you're happy or sad. There is no, are you happy or sad? The situation will dictate if you're happy or sad. And if your makeup we can't tell a Madison Square Garden from 30 rows up that you're sad, then your makeup's not good. So you mm. really have to focus on using the muscles and how does the, oh, the black and the red amazing. and the purple all mix together and really show what you're doing. So your facial work is so important in circus clowning because you're not doing birthday clowning, making balloon animals. You're in arenas, you know, hundreds, thousands of people. Um, and you have to convey that emotion. So is that is the traditional makeup that you think of a, with a clown with the red cheeks and the was that all just a version of what would they teach us regular stage makeup is for to play to the way back so you can just literally see your features? Yeah, so you don't you you want to yeah so you don't if it's too busy it's too much if it's too right so some people like the white face because it's very classical you just have the white face and I was a goose where you did more it was more expressed um, a what a uh, what a goose it's called you have hobo a goose and white face white face is white with with some of the features blue or red uh, uh, character is a hobo or something um, you know something very distinctive. And then a goose is exaggerated feature, right? My eyes would go above my eyebrows, right? My cheeks would go extend, not the, not, not, it doesn't extend past your muscles, but it extends a little into your muscles. Um, and I was more wow. that kind of clown and, and white face is considered more classical, you know, they're, right. they're a little more, and a goose is more mischievous. I, I kind of like the mischievous character. That's cool. So you go, you got into DePaul but you said, I think you said in your email, you didn't make it the whole year. Yeah. So I'm into Paul and, you know, I, I get to Paul and I really, um, uh, I really liked the people who I was with. And it's funny. 
I still in Notre Dame high school, I still didn't have any acting experience. So I'm all clowning at this point. And, you know, you maybe think stereotypical, you get into theater school and you, you know, you feel what the air and you do all that for me, that really slowed everything down. I really enjoy those exercises of, you know, walking through thick air or you're in quicksand. Cause I'd never really experienced that before. Cause I didn't have any acting per se. And so I was really enjoying DePaul because that's the best way I can describe it. It slowed everything down for me. It just, you know, okay, what does this feel like? Cause clowning was more me, but you know, how can I, but I didn't really get into what can I do? That's kind of me or not me at all, but still me. Um, and so that combination was really great. And even the, even the, the regular classes where, um, um, Rick Murphy would just have you stand in front of people and do nothing and just stand there. I found that really helpful because. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that thing. Because I was always going. So quick aside, my, my first, my first class at second city, when I went through the training center, I remember this clearly, obviously I remember it. I'm up there. I'm very, you know, very, I'm going to get this. And the guy in front of the whole class yells, Hey, croak, stop trying to be funny. It's painful to watch. And I was like, oh. Wow. And because I was so earnest. I got to do that. And, and, and it's almost what he said in Clown College. Don't be funny. Just do the scene. The comedy will come. And so Second City also taught me, I don't have to be funny. If I'm just true to the scene, the humor will come. And if it's not funny, at least it's interesting. Ah, right? because I love nothing that. worse than trying to go for the joke and it doesn't land. And people are like, eh, it didn't really land. Just be honest to it. And DePaul, so in my short time, really kind of helped me. I as you, I need slowing down. Even to this day, I need to slow down. You know, it just kind of helped me get it to another level. You know, what? 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 what is, I learned so much from interviewing people on this podcast. And um, one thing I just hit me was, because in commercials, when I auditioned for commercials or television and film, there is a need to push because we want, I, I want to do the good work, but I love what you just said was don't try to be funny. Just be true to the script and the scene. And it, even if you're not funny, at least you'll be interesting. And I think Holy it's shit. more, I think the stakes are higher because if you're going for funny, it always, it always can go into chaos and you're just busy and busy is almost like, well, I'm busy. I'm doing something. But if you're in the scene you almost are committing to a certain silence and a pacing that says you're going to come along this journey with me and I'm going to slowly reveal my emotions. That's a lot harder than just being wacky and, oh, I don't have to think about anything. So it's, it's, isn't it interesting to think about the things that like, I'm thinking about the difference between comedy that hits and comedy that doesn't. And really what it is, is that you're there as an audience member and you're watching this person. So you've already agreed to pretend, you know, to, to suspend your disbelief that this is a real person. And then there's just this very fine line. The person who's performing has either done something that is relatable and surprising and therefore funny, or, or the fact that they are trying to be relatable and funny shows. And that's the thing that we don't like. Right? Isn't that interesting? Right. Yeah. I never really, I, I never yeah. really broke it down like that. That I mean, even Seinfeld, and I'm not saying, listen, Seinfeld's huge. I mean, but think about it. You know, um, 
Boy, I hate that airline food. Oh my God, so do I. You're just saying I hated airline food. You know, right. don't you hate when you pull a sock out of the dryer and it's just one sock? Oh my God, that's me all the time. You're just yeah. really connecting with what happens with you. You right. don't have to necessarily say, I'm going to be some super being that's going to make you laugh because I'm doing something amazing. You're saying, we are all together and this is how I navigate the world. And comedy can ensue from that, from either status or failing. You know, um, it's, those are some of the ways. But what, so why okay. so why did you leave, though? Why did you leave DePaul? So then I get a call that, so I'm in, like, so it took me so long to get in. So I'm like three, four months into it only. And I get a call from some circus people saying, hey, we're in Italy now. And Circo Americana, you know, we're running. We're the head clowns at this Italian circus. We're going to tour all over Italy. So why don't you come with us? We can hire three people. It'd be a five clown. You know, I used to 26 clowns in Ringling, right? This is a five person, more European. So way more stage time, you know, more, more to do. Come on over. And I'm like, oh, I just got into DePaul. You know, I can't, you know, um, I can't go. Went to Rick Murphy, sat down and laid it out. He goes, you got to go. You have to go. He said, let's do this. How long is the contract? I said, one year. It's a year contract. He said, finish, you know, the trimester. Come back and we'll get you right back in. You don't have to audition. You'll come right back in. So I had it planned out. I'm like, great. I'm going to be able to do Italy, go for a year, come back. And I actually did that with Second City. When I, went to, I came, I actually joined three times, you know, and ended with the fifth level with a completely different group. Um, so I finished it out. And, and that was hard because uh, with uh, my fellow classmates like Sean Gunn and Valentin, uh, Val, uh, Amy Bedingfield, we had some really great people that to this day, I go, oh, that would have been fun to, to play in the sandbox with them a lot longer, you know? So that was really hard, but I thought, well, I'll be back in a year. Hopefully they'll still be here. And then I'll, I'll, they'll be a year older than me in, in terms of that, but we'll all be together. So I go to Italy, uh, do a month in Naples and this circus has been around for a long time. And for whatever reason, they started having troubles right away. Like Naples is where they make almost all their money. They're there for a month. They make all their money. They go out on tour. Well, nobody came out that year. So they already knew going into the year that they had no money. So we're three months into this contract. And me and the new guy get called to the guy who doesn't speak hardly any English. He says, I need to see you in my office tomorrow morning. And we, that's rare, right? So me, me and this guy, Dickie Truth, who I was with Ringling Brothers, we go, they want us to do more skits. So we sat all night writing like seven okay and then we'll do this we'll do this uh western skit and then you're on a horse okay how about a golf skit okay i'm gonna build this path wait can i just tell i have to interrupt that like it, it's brilliant that that's where you went because i'd be like oh, me I'm too fired. Me too. I'm, oh, I'm fired uh, not I'm only like, am i fired i'm going to jail i'm going to jail for something yeah. like i'll be in jail so but anyway so you guys oh, yeah. did all these skits yeah. Yeah, and and right, and like you probably you're smarter than I am because we went in and we, with our with our paper and no English. You're going home fired. Wow. Oh well, oh, won't be needing these, will you? We're like we have a contract. Like, what do you mean? Like this is unheard of. You don't break a contract. And I guess they gave us enough money to go home. Like we, there was, there's no breach. I'm not getting a lawyer. Right. So now that was scary. Now I'm in Italy. I got no contract. I mean, they let us stay in the, in the, cause it wasn't a train. I was like, well, they could just tell us to go walk the streets. Um, but now I had a problem because now I had to go home. The guy who I was with Dickie truth, um, Richard Toth, he actually, he lived in New York. He, he leased his apartment for a year. So he went to Prague. He was like, well, I'm going to Prague, you know, 
he had he ended up sitting there 12 years married talk like he stayed there 12 years i come home i got nothing so i thought well i'll just i'll maybe continue taking second city classes i'm still only like 20 or so um i'll i'll now i'll join DePaul next year i mean that was still i really really enjoyed it and then two months later another clown who went to berkeley they formed this company called the reduce shakespeare company where they did all 37 plays of shakespeare in two hours and they just replaced two of the three guys and the third guy the original cast member adam long he he's from uh, he went to pepperdine he was going to london to be with his wife they called me and said hey can you fill in for eight weeks? Cause they, they knew me, renew me. And I said, sure. Well, that eight weeks turned into 17 years. So Holy I never, shit. I never got back to DePaul because once I joined the RSC, it was only gonna be eight weeks. And then the guy ended up staying in London. They opened up a show in the criterion um, uh, district criterion theater, sorry, uh, in London. And they ran forever and he never came back to America. Yeah. Uh, Piccadilly circus criterion theater, Piccadilly circus. And then I stayed, I was the American, I was the American cast member. And you, you were uh, touring with uh, Reduce Shakespeare Company for 17 years? All over the world. Yeah. All over, wow. all over the world. We did, Holy we did fuck. international. That's where I went to Japan. We did New Zealand, um, you know, um, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Israel, uh, London, Scotland, and then all over the States. We did sit down tours like um, Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., or we did a lot of college towns, one-nighters, um, or just... You are the only person we've talked to that has left DePaul to actually work, that wasn't cut, that took a leave and never went back because you actually toured the world doing art. Yeah. And isn't it funny that I go, oh, I wonder if I would have liked to stay and got a little more schooling. Right, so, right. right. Grass is always greener. You're right. You're always wondering. So you never went to college. I mean, you never fit, you never graduated from college. No. Mm-hmm. And even Oakton Community College, I think I started and stopped five times mm-hmm. because I'd come home. Wow. I would do something. Hey, do you want to go to Japan? Go to Japan. Came home. Started something. Hey, you got into Paul. Come home. You want to go to you know Italy? Came home or do Shakespeare Company. So I just, I was yeah. always trying to get school in. I was trying to get it in. Wow. Okay. And then sometime in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, you had a traumatic event. Your wife passed away and you wrote a book about it. So can you tell us a little yeah, bit more about so that? So that was, so I'm in the middle of touring and um, this would be in 2008. And at the time I'll, I'll jumpstart some of it and go backwards. Uh, we're, we're pregnant with our third child, our third daughter. And I'm, um, a week away from going on a tour that's going to take me to uh, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and I believe Pittsburgh. And and I, and I was going to miss Molly's birth. I already missed my first daughter's birth, Haley, because, again, I was on the road nine months out of the year with the Reduce Shakespeare Company. And I met Lisa, who I met at Oakton Community College in a theater class. Um, I met her, and she never questioned it. It was one of the reasons we got married. It wasn't, when are you getting off the road? Like, she came to Israel when I went there. Um, when Molly was born, we all went to Ireland for, for four months, including Molly. So she never questioned it, but it was a hard life, but we, it was either that or break up. And we didn't want to break up. So I already missed, you know, Haley's birth. So I'm kind of used to that lifestyle. And she did have previous cancer that we thought was, you know, breast cancer that we thought was taken care of and she was pregnant, not feeling well. So she went to the ER and they came in and I was on the phone with the person getting arrangements for San Francisco. And they came in and said, the cancer's all over your body. And so I literally said, Hey guys, let me call you right back. 
And among other things that were traumatic, that was the end of my performing career. That that was oh, it. And yeah. I didn't, didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Hung up the phone. Um, and they explained that was in the in the liver, lung, um, bone, it was everywhere. So I we didn't know if Molly was gonna make it, you know, we didn't know if Lisa, the the high risk doctor, said, Hey, you know, I don't know if you know if either of them are gonna make it. So we kept doing chemo. They found a chemo that worked. Lisa was, you know, she was great. She's like, no, we're we're gonna we're gonna do this, we're gonna keep it going. Cause they did talk about well, if they terminated the pregnancy, you know, would that, you know, would that help anything? You know, I'd pick my wife and they sure. said, no, it's estrogen negative, you know, maybe a couple months. So that decision, and Lisa's like, well, that's not happening by the way, you know, stick a needle in my chest, drain the fluid in my heart. Don't put me under, I don't care. You're going to do this. We're going to keep it going. So I took my cues from her, you know, and she was, no, let's do this. So um, to add to that, Lisa's mom was also dealing with cancer and we moved in with her a year prior to help her with her cancer. Mm -hmm. And now she's in the hospital dying. So this is, so I'm going at the same hospital. I'm going from a, 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 from a baby doctor to up to see mom who they're going to amputate her leg to then go to see Lisa for the high risk doctor, then to go get chemo. I mean, my whole year was just, you know, in the hospital 24 seven. And you had other children. Two other girls. Yeah. Yeah. Two other girls Uh, at the time, uh, right. A a seven-year-old and a, and a, two-year-old and so my 2008 was that molly little miracle molly was born in march her mom passed away in april and then Mm -hmm. lisa uh, lost her life in july that was my 2008 wow so in the midst of all that my brother which if you knew my brother he you'd laugh because he works like sunday night football and you know and, and you know you know um was kind of like always getting in trouble he he mails me this journal like three months into all this and says, Hey, I heard if you write your thoughts down, it helps. So I would journal while she's getting chemo. I would just journal everything, you know, because I had the mom and there are now her ex-husbands are now flying in trying to help last minute, which was not helpful. And Mm -hmm. everyone telling me, well, just stay positive. And I'm like, I think it's a little deeper than that. It just, there were so many factors that were, you know, people wanted me to do, and they, and they would get like mad at me. Like, well, you got to go back to acting. I'm like, that's, we're not even thinking about that now. And they said, well, you can't be a martyr. I'm like, oh, wow. Not being a martyr. I'm being a parent. Like I'm trying to figure this out. And I, I know I'm jumping around a little, okay. you know, it's almost like they were taking their fears and instilling them into me. Yeah. Well, something happened to my, I don't want to give up my career. I don't want to give up my life. Like you got to do it to right. show me. I'm like, I, I can't. So no, and I think that the thing, and we've talked about this on the podcast, Matt, and I don't know if you would agree or not, but like when I was going through the, uh, not nothing nearly as is like that, but like some stuff with my mom, my mom and my husband both had cancer at the same time, and then, um, and and she passed away, and the look in people's eyes was, oh my god, if this can happen to you. Mm-hmm. It can happen to me, but they don't take it a step further and deal with it. So instead of saying, they say, they stop there and go, okay, but that's not going to happen. So let me now just vomit everything back yeah. on you. It's like a direct situation. You can see it in the eye. Take the person who right? needs your support the most and not only don't support them, but ask them to support you by making you feel right. better about feel whatever better. choices you may theoretically make in the future if you theoretically have the same experience. I mean, it's oh so, my we're all God, so deeply it's selfish. So, 
Gene, it's funny they say that real fast. It's just jumping ahead. Years later, years later, I'm at a party and a friend of mine from high school comes up to me and said, and I once, once Lisa passed, I probably lost 70% of my friends because they didn't know what to do with me. Right, I think that, that, right. that dream. Yeah. And I had a guy come up to me and said, oh, I should have been there for you. I told you I was there. And Gene, exactly what you said. I go, you know, I, I'm, I know you're going through this journey. I'm not able to help that. I hear you. Good luck with that journey. I'm not, I'm not there to help you that you basically yeah. cut me out of your life. Like yeah. that's on you. Like I, yeah. and I was nice to him, but I'm like, I, I hear you. I just can't, you know. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to yeah. do cleanup yeah, too I, for I, you, I, for yeah, your, I, yeah. Good luck with you. you know, and I was friendly and we still kind of, you know, every once in a while chat. Um, so then oh, briefly just shit. to, so then my, so I started writing down and then after she passed, I had this journal and then people come up to me all the time and say, what was it like? How did you deal with it? Um, because I did use a lot of improv. I mean, I will say a lot of what I taught, I mean, improv, not to be too simplistic about it, but it's not having a script and, and saying yes and to things. Um, so it helped me because you're not in control. I mean, people who really like to be in control, huh, you go through this experience and you are not in control. Right. You have to accept no. whatever premise is given to you and you have to go with it. And there are other people that are relying on you and you got to say, all right, how do I, how do I make this better? And, and then that's a horrible thought. She's like, but this isn't better. It's horrible. And it's so many emotions. So I started to kind of just for my own self, just like Taffy, just started pulling it and writing out in journal form that nine months from when we're in the hospital to after she passed, not, not anything after, not anything before. And then I finished it. And what I did was I went to Amazon and I found a bunch of people who review memoirs. And I said, I emailed him. I said, you don't know me. I said, that's the point. Can you read this? Cause you don't know me. If tell me if it's interesting. Cause I want to know if it's just, Oh, this is really just mad. If you know, Matt, it's great. And so they read it and they gave me a lot of right. thoughts and I shaped it and I ended up self-publishing it because they came back and said, no, it, no, I don't know you. And this is interesting. This is what you're saying is very straightforward. This is what you went through, right? Mm -hmm. With two people dying of cancer and a baby on the way, all this stuff. I, she's like, I, they, they're like, I followed it. So I, I just self-published it into a book. Wow. So, and you did that at the same time as you're raising three children by yourself. Yeah. Well at that, yeah. At the, no, at that time, um, to jump a little bit, I waited, I was doing all of it, but then I was at Lutheran general hospital in the kids were in the good morning program, which I believe now that I go back, I think it's a play on words. Good morning. More. And I'm like, seems oh, like an ad. Oh, uh, M-O-U, like, right. Are we really doing puns? All right, whatever, fine, all I right. mean, yeah. Sure. With the death of a parent. Right. Okay. So I did that. And my three girls met three other girls and they're like, Oh, their dad died of brain cancer. And they're just like us. They're, they're three daughters. So I talked to the mom a little bit and then oh. we would all go out and kind of formed a group. And then, um, uh, and then one night it all kind of fell apart and Cheryl and I were the only ones. I'm like, well, I got a sitter. She's like, I got a sitter. And we just had dinner and talked about, you know, uh, all cancer and how they binged on sugar the final days and how they turn on you, which was really difficult because mm -hmm. they're binging on sugar, they're dying and you're trying to help them. And they're like, you're, you're blocking me and they're yelling at you and you're, you feel horrible because you have mm -hmm. to try to get them to live. And yet they know they just want to comfort themselves and all that shared experience. Um, and the waiter kept like, we did either the service is really good or the waiter's like, I got to go back to that table. I got to, this conversation is beyond interesting. Um, and then we dated and then we Brady bunched it and married like a year later and six daughters and uh, uh, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> live in Park Ridge, Illinois. Um, well, that is a yeah. great 
yes and moment you're like okay yeah this is the given circumstances and for her too we we, we lost our life partners we have right. these three children that and i'm a big fan amazing. of I, I know semantics i'm a big fan of words it, it's not moving on i don't you know i right. i do think we have a responsibility for people you know let's take the widow and widowers i think i had i'll talk about myself i think i had a responsibility to help people understand because they did say things that would just drive you crazy. So I try to educate and it's not moving on. You're evolving. I never, you know, even to this day, I, I bought their dad was in the army. I bought a, a frame to put his flag in and we, we display it probably in the living room. Right. We, we talk about, I, I tell them now as they're teenagers, you know, your dad would be so proud of you. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just here to help. You know, I'm not here to replace. You don't move on. You, you evolve. Right. They're not here. Whoa. You, you can't, it, it's just, it's complicated. But it's not as simple as move on. So when we got married, we weren't over what happened, nor sure. do I want to be or ever be. Right. But we decided to evolve into something and let's see where this goes. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So you Amazing. didn't know that that was going to mark the end of your performing career, but it did. So then what did you pivot to? Well, I underestimated how difficult being creative would be. I, I, I will... You know, I will say I probably thought it'd be, I knew that I had a new path, right? I mm -hmm. knew that I was very fortunate to travel the world and have all my experience to be in the circus. And I went, well, all right, that was then, this is now. Mm -hmm. But I really struggled with, with what was happening next. And, you know, for any artists out there and just keep, I know pandemic, keep doing it because it really is fulfilling. And I, and I, and I miss it. And I, I should have done more to answer your question. A buddy of mine from Notre Dame, after um, uh, uh, a year after Lisa passed away, he said, hey, look, we're starting an autism center in uh, this place called Darien Burridge, Illinois. Uh, we need someone to help build furniture. There's only four employees. It may last 30 minutes. And it was a bit of a drive. But I said, sure. He's like, you're good at talking to people. You can be at the front desk, help build insurance. And that was in 2009. I'm still there. We have 12 centers, over 600 employees. Um, we're building another center in Oak Brook this year, two centers in Georgia. So I'm the director now, client relations. And one thing I was able to do was like three years ago, four or five years ago, I went to him and said, we should have a podcast. And they went, we don't know what that is. And we don't understand it. I'm like, I'll make one. So I interview therapists. I interview, um, uh, authors. I interview parents. What's it like to have a child on the spectrum? So that, and as a director of client relations, that helps me give that out to parents. Now, obviously it doesn't just go to our parents and goes all over. Mm -hmm. So that helps. Um, the book helped, but then when the book was over, I went, what next? Right. But I'm not going to lie. I, I struggle. So do you, do, yeah. So it sounds like, let's talk about that because that's, I think a lot of people, including myself, that I went through a period where when I was a therapist, I, I was literally doing um, nothing that I felt was fulfilling my creative um, itch. And it was, I got really depressed and I got really, uh, I didn't even know what was happening. Like I started to feel like, so I guess my question for both of you um, is, do you think that uh, being an artist and being creative is something that's in our DNA that we must express somehow, or we'll get very depressed? Or do you think that you can cover it up with other types of things and do other things? I think, I think it's organic. You know, when I was sensitive to finish the book with Cheryl and 
and I said, she says, why, why do you have to get out there? She was, it was a fair question. Are you trying to relive the past? I went, no, I'm not trying to relive the past. And I said, you know, Cheryl, it's weird. It's like, it's, it's like calling me, like finish this, like you finish this project. Like Lisa, it's something that was just, it felt right to do. And so I think if you see the world and you have a, anyone who has a vision or a thought or a plan, that's a gift. Right. And I think it's hard to sit on those mm-hmm. gifts. And I think I look at things and go, oh boy, it'd be great if it was done like this, or boy, that could be, if it could be done like this. And that's where I go back to craft. And I, the farther I've gotten away from performing, even more do I respect craft. And for my daughter, who now wants to get into it a little bit, I'm talking about it. You know, I just listened to an interview of Penn and Teller, Penn, who's a clown college graduate, right? He's in Vegas. He's got more money than dirt. Um, he's been doing all these shows. He did an interview and it was so refreshing. He was on this interview. He's like, oh my gosh, I love my Vegas show. I know more now than I've ever known. I'm doing my best work right now. Me and Tyler, we are connecting. Here's the guy that's been doing it forever. And you can hear how excited he is, how good he's doing. And I went, that's craft. That's someone who's in it because they love it and they see it and that will keep them going. Um, that's interesting. I- yeah. Hmm. I, I don't think I was ever really making that distinction before, but that, that's very interesting. To answer your question, Buzz, um, I mean, I, 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 well, I vacillate. Sometimes I say, yes, it's in your, your DNA, but then I look at what you and I were trying to get acting, which is pay attention to me, you know, which came from our, uh, from our upbringing. I, I, what I know is it got, informed in me very early that I wanted to perform and that I was very depressed for the years that I wasn't in any way involved. And I think I told you, like, I couldn't see a play. I could, I I barely wanted to watch TV or film. It was all just so, I had such terrible envy of people who were doing that. Um, Now I don't have necessarily envy because I'm, I'm doing this, but of course now I just want something. I want more. I just want more. And, and Sean Gunn said this, we did a part two with him last week. Um, No matter how much you work, you want to work more. You want to be doing it all the time. You want to be on the stage all the time or doing the, the movie all of the time. And the days off are not fun. I mean, yeah, maybe you're tired and you need to relax, but it's, it, it's one of these beasts that the more you feed it, the bigger it grows in a weird kind of way. Uh, What's it for you, Bozzy? Right. Uh, I feel like, yeah, I feel like now I'm at a stage where I am open to the idea that it, it may look differently than I thought when I was younger in terms of being a creative However, I must be doing something creative in my life because like you said, Matt, I do feel one of my gifts, whether it's acting or writing, is being of service through creativity. But I don't know exactly at 46 what that's going to look like. But maybe nobody, not a lot of people know. Like, I don't have a set thing, Matt, where like, I'm like, okay, my thing is blank and that's what I will do. Like, you know, Penn and Teller for the rest of my days will be my show in Vegas. I don't know what it's going to look like yet. And it may be a plethora of different things, 
but I don't know. So, um, but I do know that I must be doing something creative because that is part of my service legacy to the world. I just don't know what form it's going to take. What about you, Matt? Like, do you know what form, like what you would like your next creative thing to look like, or is it happening already? Or, you know, I, I, I don't know what my, you know, do I have an act three left in me? You know, I'm 52. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm what, what I find interesting is that in the pandemic, one thing that I do a year and a half, we had a reduce, reduce Shakespeare company kind of reunion. Like I mentioned also the clown college one. And out of that every Tuesday for like two years now, we get together on zoom and we play seven card, um, hold them, Texas hold them. And it's just all these artists and they're, it's been very difficult to watch my artist friends not working. Now I'm out of the field. So I'm, I'm working and to see the Reduce Shakespeare Company not working and saying, well, how are we going to evolve anyway to even be more inclusive and, 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 and do more with more diversity? With the pandemic, people are going to want entertainment more than ever. People are going to want, you know, I listen to a podcast that talks about podcasts and they say that the creation of podcasts, believe it or not, are down and the consumption is up. So less people are making them, but more people want them. So what are we going to, how, and you look at what's going on in the world and people need escape. They need to hear things. They need to think critically and they need to hear about craft and get back to it. So it's more important than ever that if you have a vision or you have the skill set and, and the desire to do it, but I don't know what form that's going to take with me. And at this point in my life, um, I, I don't know. I, I just, for now, I just have to go with what life presents me maybe when the kids get a little older i have five teenagers now so five of them are teenagers maybe they get a little older but right now i don't know that answer five fucking teenagers oh my god there's eight women in the when we had an au pair there were eight women in the house eight women and then we have a dog and everyone would say well is the dog a boy and i go it doesn't matter like what is that man yes he is but he's a like who cares it's a a boy (laughs) yeah like that's a victory like what yeah no that's yeah, not come, a victory. Watch come oh. on let's go let's go have a cigar like what were you talking about that's hilarious also i wait before i forget i was go- oh i was gonna say what if your 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 next act what if it is going back to the theater school what if you enrolled at the fucking <laughs> theater school that i cool. would fucking I mean, technically, the offer anyway. still stands. You wouldn't even have to audition. Yeah. Oh my God! You, true. You'd be like, you Rick said, Murphy said I, I can come done. back. Wow. Well, wait. Oh so I have a question God. about um, since you're talking about podcasts, are there clown podcasts? Clown-centered podcasts? I don't think that's a great question. I'm not uh, circus podcast. I think that could be an avenue for you. I don't no. know. I mean, here's the thing: like people have such a one-dimensional understanding for the most part about clowning. People mostly don't know how many centuries old it is and what the origins and how really vital the jester. I don't know if jesters are considered clowns, but how vital the jester was to court life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think it would be interesting to do kind of like a deep dive into, I mean, and you can personalize it, make it about you and your story and the people that you know, but you know, so I mean, because honestly, like we're all such clown, everybody is wearing a mask through life. Everybody is doing the bit that they think is going to get them love and affection and attention. We're all just doing it without makeup and big shoes. 
Well, and and clowning, and you kind of mentioned clowning is what's interesting about clowning. It is one of those art forms that you say it and you think of something completely different. And then when you do it, you go, oh, right. I mean, the oh, Marx Brothers shit. were doing clowning, you know, better than, uh, you know, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, you know, his stand-up, I think, has a lot of clowning in it. If you see him, he's a stand-up from Arlington Heights. Um, yeah. He's very physical. A lot of, lot of movement. I mean, movement and clowning and dance are so integrated. It's like, oh, balloon animals, birthday parties. No, it's movement. It's, mm-hmm. it's dance. It's facial expression. You know, it's, you know, it's actually, you know, less mask, more extension. Get out who you are just in bigger form which is a different art form than saying I'm going to be something else. You typically want to, unless you're a character, you want to be yourself, but even amplified. Um, Mm -hmm. So it is. Which is, which could get into tricky territory in terms of like being, having your, you know, people talk about method acting, but like, what if your clown like could take over? Like, what if you're, I mean, obviously we got the Joker and stuff and that whole situation um, um, in terms of that. But like, did you, do you see people like lose themselves in their clowning and become like the clown and like do weird shit? Yeah. So what you don't want it to, so I see them use it as an excuse just to be not a very nice person, right? That's mm-hmm. you, you, sure. They go, oh, and let's talk about the Joker, right? The Joker would be one where I'm, it's just an excuse. I'm going to kind of hide behind this, but it's really who I am, but oh, it's, it's, it's the clowning. So yeah, there's always, you know, and even even in clown college, I think some of the most talented people in there didn't get a contract and they were blown away. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, but you're you you got to live in a you got to when we lived in a train, it was a three and a half by six. That's what I lived for a year in a three and a half by six room. That was my room. Right? You got to live in a room. You got to work with 25 people. You got to go city to city. You have to get along. And if that personality that you're talking about, Boz, if it doesn't work out, then they don't want you on the on the train. So right, luckily, right. my experience was those people got did get weeded out in clown college, and the people that made it on to the circus that was a much healthier uh, uh, collaborative environment, which really, you know, was the start for me working, you know, working with with people um, ensemble, like yeah, because quickly shit. Second City when I had audition first when I finished the training center, and you have to audition, horrible experience, horrible because the audition is all about making yourself look good so you can get on. That's absolutely counterintuitive to everything you learn in the class because you want to showcase right. yourself. <laughs> we should almost right. teach a class. Okay, in this class, you're going to do improv and all you're going to do is make everyone else look bad and you look good. Yeah, Because yep. we're supposed to follow these rules in improv. You're supposed to work with team. You're supposed to bounce up. And then you audition and everyone's trying to get a laugh and then you look stupid yes. because no one's following the rules and it's chaos. And I found that a yes. very unsettling experience because, um, and not that I'm naive, but it really, I wasn't trained for that. That's not. Well, it's gross. It becomes like Lord of the Flies on stage. It's it's disgusting. And it's also, um, it is, it's counter, it's counterintuitive. And it's like, everyone just wants to be on Saturday Night Live at that point. And everyone's willing to kill somebody to do it. And meanwhile, you talk to people that get on Saturday Night Live and they're like, uh, so, most of them are like, it was the worst. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's just, it's bong. That's the entertainment industry. Um, But I think you should have a podcast too. And I think it should be called this fucking clown. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's good. Oh, I like that. No, go ahead. You know, I want to address one thing real quick. And, and just when we go back to Lisa a little bit, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you guys were talking about um, uh, having an advocate. I just want to chime in my two cents, especially on my thing, going through the medical 
um, thing, boy, do people need advocates. And if you have a loved one that's in a hospital for a long time, nurses are amazing, but they forget and they may be down on their medications and they may be. So I'm not sure I like the, no one needs an advocate. Boy, do we need advocates? And especially, Hey, the, the circulation things aren't on her legs and she's been sitting. Oh, I forgot. Right. Yeah. Absolutely need an advocate. Uh, Yeah. 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 I just, uh, before we, because we'll, we'll have to end in a couple of minutes, but before yep. we do, I just wanted to circle back to your to your mom. Your your mom really pushed you to, to this clown college, and then she was really surprised when it was. Does she have uh, performance desires that uh, maybe she didn't attend to that she put onto you? We had in our school, and we still talk. I was just talking at a, at a at a party last week from some guys who I went to grammar school with. Our grammar school. Catholic school was shut down for two weeks. This was back in the seventies and the eighties shut down for two weeks. And they would put on what's called festival and they would turn. We think about it now. It's mind blowing. They would turn the classrooms into stages and they would build stages in like eight of the classrooms. And it would be so attended. The gym was the big show who got the big show and groups of friends would be the performers. These are non-actors, not hired professionals. And it went for five years. They made so much. Now it's all casino night and gala. But back then, the amount of time. So not only were my parents in festival with their group of five friends in a show, I'm running lights as a seventh grader. Um, you know, so I remember those days and, and they were totally, you know, my dad singing, you know, uh, Jim Croce, Leroy Brown. And I just. I, lo- I remember oh. and they just would do silly things and people loved it because it's your own friends doing shows who aren't really performers. And I see Haley, who's my 21 year old who now wants to get into voice acting cartoon and acting. And, and she's starting to take classes at second city. Well, she, she would come with me sometimes to Springfield or Iowa and they would let her run crew backstage, you know, as a, as a fifth grader and she's handing props and, and doing all that. And, you know, went to Ireland and now she has uh I think a lot of it too, we talk DNA. I think a lot of it is experience. Like, you know, yeah, what yeah. you're kind of used to and what you see and then thinking, and then you train your mind to think differently. And that's where the art comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Matt, where can people find you? Yes. And your book and all the shit. Well, so uh, yeah, I guess if, so my podcast is very specific to autism. So if, if anyone is dealing with autism in their life, um, navigating it, mainly younger parents who are trying to figure it all out, it's called the By Your Side Autism Podcast. By Your Side is the name of our company. You're right. Uh, it's same iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music. So By Your Side Autism Podcast. And then the book is on Amazon. It's Yes And. It's a lot of people confused by the title, but it came to me. Yes And. Mm-hmm. I have this premise. What am I going to do with it? Because saying no and saying I hate the world and saying I'm mad at God, that didn't cut it for me. I just didn't know what to do mm-hmm. with that. So mm-hmm. I had to take my improv skills and say yes and now. Uh, so yes, and is is the name of the book. Other than that, I, I you know, love in it. Park Ridge, you know, working at an autism center. <laughs> Hit them up, everybody! Thank you, yeah. Matt. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so thank you much. No, thank you guys. I mean, especially now, you know, like I said, I miss it. Keep going. This is it's so needed, and I Aww. and I know podcasting, and you don't get the feedback you should. I, I'm telling you, it's important. I know it may not seem like it, but keep Aww. keep creating art and and helping everyone figure things out. It's so important. Yay! Thank Aww, you. Thank you so much, Matt. 
you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you. Thank you.